Okay, we are on. I'm just going to make sure I put it close to my mic here. Thank you so much. Welcome to the Ask Yourself Why Not podcast. It's just Shay today. I think Jayla is feeling a little bit under the weather. Um, so hopefully she feels better here soon. Has a spring cold, like a little sore throat. And Lord knows now you just don't want to mess around with that. But today it's not just me. We have a special guest, my good friend, Angela Caldwell. Welcome, Angela. I say I'm, I'm going to go ahead and hit record on this too, okay? Okay, we're double recording today. This is our first Zoom. Recording in progress. Oh, there it is. This is our first Zoom podcast. Um, so I see people do it all the time. It's just not something that I've ever done. Is this your first podcast? This is my first podcast. I'm actually quite nervous. Oh my goodness. <laughs> You're putting your voice out there into the world. I know. Yeah, and it's hard when you're an expert, I'm sure. You're probably like a little nervous about that too because Angela's a doctor, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get into that in a little bit more. But do you have the rundown in front of you? Um, I can. Yeah, absolutely. You got it? Cuz maybe you can help me with like the quotes of the day and stuff. I can take us through our first quote of the day. This is kind of going to go with what we're going to be talking about today a little bit, but it is, I can't change the direction of the wind, but I can adjust my sails to always reach my destination. So Angela works in higher education. Um, so we're going to talk about like what that means too, and how oftentimes, especially as a researcher, you're, you're having to adjust your sails um, to reach your destination. And then the mantra of the day, do you have that? in front of you? I do. Yeah. Yes. Um, my awareness opens the door to new possibilities. Yes. I like that one. I, I like the, um, Deepak Chopra app. I think everybody knows that, but he always gives a good centering thought of the day. And so I thought that was good too. Cause sometimes we can look at problems, um, mm -hmm. over and over again and never find a solution. But if we just change our awareness around it, something will, you know, show itself to you that you really haven't yeah, thought I of before. I agree. I think that goes along with your thinking traps that you were talking about last time. Yes. Yeah. If you're not aware that those are happening, um, you can really get stuck. But if, if you just bring a little bit of awareness to things like that, um, it can really help you get out of a funk. So funny. One of my friends, I won't say who, she sent me a message. She was like, so I, I was in one of your thinking traps. And I was like, okay, what's going on? She was like, some, one of my friends that I usually text with wasn't texting me back. <laughs> And she said, and I started thinking, what did I do? Oh my gosh, she's mad at me. And I was laughing. I was like, she probably just like lost her phone or something happened. And then like a day later, she goes, she shattered her phone. It wasn't working anymore, you know, <laughs> but we always feel like we're in a fight, you know? Absolutely. <laughs> um, so anyways, but yeah, so welcome Angela. And for those of you that don't know, Angela and I went to Bethany College together back in the day. Um, were you a year behind me or two? I don't know anymore. Um, <laughs> around the same time. Yeah, I think so too. So, and you and I had children around the same time too. So you have two kids that are pretty young. Um, I do. We're like in our birthday season. So Isaac will be, uh, seven. Uh, this weekend and Maggie turns five at the beginning of May. So, yep. Yeah. And I remember, I don't know if you remember this, but did I run into you at the movie theater or was I, we were at like Target or something 
and you were like, guys, I'm pregnant. And I was like, oh, me too. <laughs> then we kind of shared. I do remember that now that you say it. <laughs> I was like, I didn't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We were all kind of in that later first trimester. Um, so it's been good to go through you through this with you because, you know, parenting is a newer journey. And we both had two kids under two for a little while while um, yeah. while working and stuff. So that that's not easy. No, there was, there was a little pack of us that were all pregnant at the same time, just happened randomly. So that, that really was nice. Yeah. Um, and how have you guys been handling with the pandemic? Are is school back in session for your kids full time now? It is. So, um, Maggie still goes to daycare and they've been open for a while now, but she went back, um, in October and Isaac's also been going to school. Uh, first he started four days a week. And, or no, two days a week, just for a little while in October. Before that, he was virtual. Um, and now he's been going five days a week nice. uh, pretty consistently. So it's, it is, it's, it's really helped a yeah. lot. Yeah, no doubt about that. That's how ours are back five days now. Davis just has two hour delays on Wednesdays to help the teachers, I guess, with their um, virtual. So much, much better for the parenting schedule when the children are in school. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Get more done away for sure. Yeah, but anyway, so let's get a little bit into your background. You can talk to us a little bit about, like, what your background is, what your area of study is, and where you're kind of at now. So you, what was your major at Bethany? My major at Bethany was psychology. Okay. And I actually, uh, at, at 18, when I started at Bethany, I had no idea. I mean, like, not the slightest hint of a clue what I wanted to do. And so I was an undecided major for way too long. Um, but I was really passionate about different types of therapies. Like, I became really interested in, like, art therapy or nature therapy. And so um, a fabulous mentor of mine, Gail Thompson... Um, is actually the one that introduced me to occupational therapy. And and he said, you know, in occupational therapy, you can use a lot of creative skills um, to help people achieve their goals. And so I started looking into it. Um, I got a, a job at a summer camp in Wheeling, actually, um, at Northwood Health Systems, working with children with um, developmental disabilities. Um, and I, I loved it. And so um, that kind of set my pathway. And um got my master's in occupational therapy from Boston University, and then a few years later went back and got my PhD at the University of Pittsburgh in rehabilitation sciences. Okay. So yeah, I, um, like for the average lay person, what, what is the role of an occupational therapist? I think most people are familiar with a physical therapist or a speech therapist and have heard of an occupational therapist, but maybe aren't quite sure of what they do. Yeah, and I think that that's because in a lot of ways, occupational therapists are like a jack of all trades. So our, what you think about occupational therapy is probably highly influenced by the experiences that you've had with them. Um, but we say in, in our program, we always tell the students that we're working with and, and train them to be able to kind of have the skills to talk about OT, that we really help people do the things that they need to do, that they want to do, or they're expected to do. Okay. Um, so we think of occupations as kind of those everyday tasks that either you're wanting to do or you need to do for one reason or another. Um, and so that can range from helping someone relearn skills after an injury. Um, I think that's what people think of a lot when they think of OTs. Um, like somebody after they might have um, a stroke, we might help them learn how to 
do their activity day activities of daily living, like dressing and brushing their teeth again. Um, or it may be that we're helping, you know, young children who are just developing um, get, achieve the skills and milestones that they need to achieve um, and in the right order. Um, and so it, it really varies. Okay. And so with an occupational therapy, there are different areas of expertise. Like I knew someone that at, I think that was an OT that was just hands, a hand therapist. Yeah, there are a lot of different specialty areas and, and it may like somebody may say their specialty lies in the setting that they work in. So whether that's like acute care in the hospitals or, you know, home-based care, um, but people also specialize in things like hand therapy, hand therapists, um, certified hand therapists actually have to take a special test. So okay. that's like a very specific specialization area, um, in outpatient, usually, um, OT and PT, but, um, yeah, then there are those of us who specialize in certain like age categories. So I really specialize in pediatrics and I have colleagues that specialize in geriatrics and, so it's, it's, it's all over the board. Okay. So I knew that you were pediatrics um, because I know you, <laughs> um, <laughs> but you know what? You don't hear about a lot of pediatric specialists in our area because it is such an aging population, at least where I live in the Wheeling area. So most of my friends that are therapists are dealing with um, an older population. So with you, with relation to kids, what are some of the common like OT concerns or issues that may need to be addressed with a child? Yeah, so my experience really is in early intervention um, or working with kids under the age of three, um, sometimes under the age of five, but usually we're talking about under the age of three. And usually they're referred to OT um, for delays in adaptive skills or motor skills. And, and when I talk about adaptive skills, those really are kind of like those daily activities um, of living, but for little kids. And so what that looks like is a lot of referrals for kids having trouble with feeding um, or a lot of referrals for kids having trouble even tolerating diaper changes or with potty training, that sort of thing. Um, and motor skills, I think, are a little more straightforward, but um, especially if kids are having trouble with fine motor development um, early on, that might look like something like coloring or, you know, engaging with small toys where you have to put, you know, one thing into another. I think as kids get older um, and in early intervention, what comes out through these delays is that OTs are working a lot with kids with sensory processing issues um, or behavioral issues. And again, those kind of more well-known sort of adaptive delays or motor delays. Okay. So if you notice, I remember just from hanging out with you when our kids were little, you were like assessing probably just as how your brains changed when all of our kids were playing. Um, oh, my light just went out. Look at this in my car. It's dark in here. Let me open my door. There we go. She's back. Um, but I remember you saying like holding, holding the crayons like if they had a difficult time holding the crayons that's not even something that I would have looked for I think as a parent but you as an OT you kind of had that trained eye for it why is it important for a, a child to be able to hold a crayon properly or you know have some of those other like that skills that may seem not as obvious to the naked eye and yes, to get like really an early intervention I guess is what I'm saying yeah, absolutely. It's really important even from early on, you know, when kids start to learn language and they start pointing and they isolate that finger, that's one of like the first fine motor sort of skills that we see. And that turns into them being able to pick up 
small bits of food, right? Like using like a pincer grasp or their thumb um, and their pointer finger together or even their pinky, whatever finger it is, just kind of learning how to do that. That all becomes really important because if, if kids miss those milestones, it becomes harder for them to learn them as they develop. So it's not really um, what we consider like a critical period where kids, you know, if they don't get these skills, they're never going to learn them, but it is sensitive. Um, and the brain is developing so rapidly in those first three to five years of life that, you know, we really need to take advantage of all the kind of connections that are happening in the synapses and, and helping the kids learn and grow and develop very early in life. And so for the specific example of fine motor skills, um, that's really going to help them down the road even be able to button their pants, right? Okay. And so they really mm -hmm. need to start getting that intrinsic hand strength. And honestly, the best thing they can do for that, like for little babies, is like tummy time. That's why therapists push tummy time so much and that sort of weight bearing through the upper extremities. Huh. Um, because if they don't have shoulder strength, all that fine distal control is really hard and core strength to hold themselves upright. That's good to know. No one's ever explained to me why tummy time was important. I just thought it was honestly not to get a flat head. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that's important too. You know, it's the whole back to sleep. So when, when we transitioned, mm -hmm. you know, like as babies, a lot of us now parents are told, of course, like, don't put a blanket on your child, nothing in the crib, you know, put them to bed on their back. But I found a picture of me at like four months old on my belly with a pillow in the crib. <laughs> And like a big comforter over my back. Um, so while that like was not good and there were higher rates of SIDS back then, um, what it did do is, is force us to push ourselves up against gravity earlier. Yeah. And so even like the milestones have shifted a little bit since um, everybody has gone to this back to sleep. Like we're not expecting kids to crawl or sit up quite as soon um, because they're spending less time on their bellies. That makes sense. Yeah. Because even, um, I mean, those first three to six months of their lives, they sleep so much. They are on their back. I remember like just turning their heads <laughs> to try to avoid getting the flathead because they're sleeping so much. Yep. <laughs> yeah. That's a good point. So I know from um, your research area from just back in the day when you were um, going through your PhD, which by the way, you were were you pregnant both times? Like, how long did it take you to get your PhD? Um, it took me about five years, and, and that was beyond my master's degree. So right. um, it's not a short amount of time. Um, probably uh, part of that is I, I worked full time in the beginning when I went back. I really didn't want to let go of any of my clinical experience. Um, and then you're right. So then I, I had both of my kids um, while I was getting the PhD. Isn't that crazy for you to even speak out loud now? Like it is. you had it is. two children while getting your PhD. It does. It sounds like a little bit, a little bit insane, but, um, mm -hmm. you know, what's interesting is if, when you like enter into the world of academics, I think I was, I don't know, maybe I was 28 when I started the PhD. Mm -hmm. And so I had decided that this was not going to be something that was my life. It was going to be one part of my life. Mm -hmm. And so I wasn't going to put anything on hold. Um, I was just going to kind of let my personal life unfold as this sort of academic career was unfolding. And, and some people will wait um, until they're done with their PhD or until they get tenure. But there's always there's always the next thing to achieve. I think you and Jayla have talked about this. Yes. too. Like there's always your next goal. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, when I look back on it, honestly, I think that they really helped me achieve balance. Oh, good. Because. 
Yeah, I mean, whatever was happening during the day or however stressed I got, like when you when you get home and you have like, you know, as a working parent, you have a limited amount of time with your kids. Um, so it really helps you to be present um, and to let go of all that other stuff, at least for that window of time where they're still awake um, and you're all together. So, yeah, because I could imagine if you didn't have the kids to kind of distract you, per se, it would be like almost like obsessive about it because mm-hmm. that's pretty much all your brain would be thinking about is getting through that program. That's good. But yeah, I think that's something awesome. I always look back to when I got hired with my current job, I was nine months pregnant with Eliana and had to go away for training for like three weeks straight. And she was three months old. I'm like, what the hell was I thinking? <laughs> I'm like shipping back breast milk. No big deal. You know, what the Oh, heck? I remember that. I remember being so impressed. Well, don't be impressed. Just- it's crazy if you think about it, but... I don't know. No, I mean, it's, it is impressive because first of all, I don't even know how to ship breast milk. Like there's just so many details that you had to work out sort of in a post pregnancy, you know, right after having a child, you're in a fog a little bit and you were like, so on it, you were just so motivated to follow your career path. And I think it just speaks volumes to the support of your family. Right. Um, yeah, I, th- I was super impressed. Same thing Still with am. you, like the support of the family and making sure everybody in the family is on board with your career goal, I think is important too, because it really strengthens your relationship when you feel fully supported at home as well. Um, so. Absolutely. So when you are looking at a child that, you know, maybe a typical child, what would an OT eating issue look like? Because that is part of your area of expertise, right? That is something that you research. Yes, absolutely. So when, you know, when I was working clinically in early intervention, I would say like most of my caseload had had some sort of feeding issue and and they really range on a, on a spectrum. So this might just be um, your typical picky eater. Um, We know that like around the age of two, about 50% of parents will report that their child is a picky eater. And sometimes this is just a normal part of development. Um, You know, around that age, kids are learning how to be autonomous and how to do things for themselves. And so one of the first things they get to control is what they eat and how much they eat, you know, and so they start to figure out these preferences and um, gain their own sort of ideas about things. But this could also go all the way to kids who are having difficulty feeding and swallowing because of, you know, maybe tone issues that that they fatigue easier when they're taking the bottle, Um, potentially like anomalies in their anatomy um, that are leading for them to like have swallowing difficulties and actually aspirate. So they might have to be on thickened liquid, which also is harder um, and more work to, to get down when you're, you know, like an infant. So yeah, they really range the spectrum and everything in between. Um, You know, we also see kids who are just more extreme picky eaters, which um, is kind of where I focus some of my early research, like these kids that they're not, they're more than just, um, your typical picky eater and that they really refuse all foods of a certain texture or a certain color or a certain taste. Like there's some sensory aspect to the food that they just cannot tolerate. Um, and so, yeah, there's, there's a lot of things that might be going on for, for some kids, it could even just be the hand to mouth of feeding that coordination piece, uh, might be something utensils, how to use utensils, um, efficiently could be something that an OT works on. My son could use some utensil work still. (laughs) (laughs) 
He kind of grosses I, me out sometimes when he eats with his hands. I'm like, come on, man. Use a fork. It might, be, it might be a preference. I think for him it's probably a preference and not the motor skills underlying it. But. Oh, let's hope so. Um, <laughs> but, yes, okay, so Paula Socorro, when we had her on, she's um, the Montessori school owner. She talked about the Maslow's hierarchy, about how, you know, mm-hmm. the things that kids can control. So sometimes with like with a with a kid that's an extreme picky eater, do you think have you found that control is part of it? Is that related to like an anxiety issue or what what are your thoughts on it, that? It could be. And it what's tricky is it's like is a chicken and an egg sort of thing. Like is it the like extreme sensory aversion and the terrible experience of like that texture in their mouth or, Hmm. you know, that smell that they really just can't tolerate that leads to sort of some anxiety and need to control the environment so that they don't have to experience that. Okay. Or is it that they were already, you know, nervous about food or have had bad experiences with feeding um, and have become just anxious about the process of eating. So now they're just going to, um, control it and limit their dietary selection because they've just had bad experiences. I mean, I feel like it probably could go either way. Okay. You know, it, it just depends on, on the kid. So that, that is interesting. I think as a parent too, like you, you think of sensory issues in kids that are maybe on the spectrum or have autism. Um, but that does give you more empathy, like for a, a more, I guess, typical child that maybe if they do have like you said, some sort of sensory issue around a smell, a certain smell or a certain texture. I think that as a parent, that would give you like more empathy versus they're just like not doing it, you know, and then you start to lose your, your mind a little bit. Yeah. There's, there's like a, a big sort of question that you have to ask as an, as a therapist, um, when you're kind of evaluating a child, is it sensory or is it behavioral? And it's probably a little bit of both, but again, it's like, what is the underlying root? You know, is this, is this child just, there's always something, there's always a reason for that, for a child's behavior. Um, and it may or may not be sensory. And so are you going to help that child explore different senses, different experiences, help to broaden their sort of exposure to things, um, and treat it sort of in a more sensory based way, or is this really something where we need to look at what's happening before and after that behavior and modifying those things um, with consequences or, you know, basic sort of positive reinforcement, um, operant condition conditioning sort of things mm-hmm. so that we can change the behavior and maybe the sensory piece is just secondary. Mm-hmm. Um, and honestly, as a clinician, a lot of times it's trial and error, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're kind of figuring it out as you go. Right. I'm sure, especially with kids, because... Um they're not the easiest to control. <laughs> I right. find out, I found out as a control freak. So when do you get intervention? So say you have, you know, a young child, what are some signs that you may need around food to where you would call a occupational therapist? Cause I know in West Virginia, we have birth to three. Is that common in most States where it's free from the ages of zero up through the age three? to get it is, therapy th- services. So, yeah. Yeah. So, um, birth to three or early part C early intervention services are actually, um, they're covered under like a federal law that the individuals with disabilities education act, IDEA. So part C is one part of that and it covers early intervention. And so what it does is it provides funding to States. 
to set up early intervention programs and they have to kind of have a way to find children that are at risk for developmental disabilities. And so every state looks a little different. Um, and some states actually parents do have to pay on a sliding scale or, or some fees, but there's money that's provided from the federal government to cover a lot of those costs. And so here in Pennsylvania, at least, you know, when I've done early intervention, it has been fully covered. The, par the parents haven't had to pay anything. Um, so that's great that that's how West Virginia is too, but that's not quite the case everywhere. Um, but yeah, so I think to go back to your earlier question about like when you know to reach out to people with early inter or to early intervention or to occupational therapists, from a physician's perspective, like a red flag might be for feeding like weight issues. Okay. Usually early in life, it's the child's underweight or they're not keeping up with their sort of growth curve. Mm -hmm. And so they might, you know, consult with a nutritionist or an OT or, you know, figure out sort of what the problem is, get this sort of comprehensive early intervention evaluation. Um, but from like more of a day-to-day -day perspective, if I would evaluate a child for early intervention and feeding was the parent's main concern, you know, sometimes they would qualify for services just because the parents were in such distress. Um, like every mealtime becomes a battle. Yeah. You know, some parents are actually crying after mealtimes or they're, they're anxious about mealtimes because it's just very stressful for one reason or another, whether that's difficulty with chewing and swallowing or more of this sort of picky eating and my child won't eat anything I put on the table. So more stressful than the average, because I do remember dinner being stressful when the kids were little just because there was a lot of screaming and throwing of food and trying to hurry up and get things on the table and, you know, they were done and then you were trying to eat. So it's more than that kind of stress where a child literally is, is crying almost the whole time and so is the parent. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it, it could be that they're crying or it could be it's just every meal. I mean, I think for typical kids, there's like one meal that's easy, at least, you know, and a lot of people, it's breakfast. Like they know what their child likes for breakfast. They kind of offer these things um, and they're acceptable food, you know, choices from the parent's perspective and the child's perspective. But I think if every meal is stressful, um, it's a signal to at least get an evaluation. Um, yeah. Before, is the earlier you catch these things, the better. Um, and you can kind of start to build really healthy routines um, in place of ones that had been. I think for parents, it's stressful because especially when they're first born, like we really mm -hmm. need to make sure they get enough food yeah. and we need to keep them clean. Like there, and we need to make sure that they get enough sleep. Like there's very few things that we need to do. And so if, if feeding goes off track in any way, whether that's they have reflux or um, they're not eating as much as we should, or they're not latching well, you know, like whatever it is, that becomes a major stressor because it's one of our, you know, few priorities early on. Yeah, that was, um, we had a little bit of an eating issue with Davis when he was first born, but he was a tiny bit premature. And I don't know, he didn't eat well. And we ended up back in the hospital with jaundice. Um, but that was a blessing because like we were put in a different hospital and those nurses were like more understanding about bottle feeding. I didn't know anything. I didn't really know at the time that you could breastfeed and bottle feed. And I was not really producing any milk because he wasn't latching on. And like, I remember Alex trying to take a syringe and squeeze out like the tiniest bit of breast milk from my, from my breast. And it just, I mean, it was silly when you look back now because I know better, but I didn't truly at the time know what I was getting into. Um, so it, it was very stressful and you just feel like 
you know, you're failing your child kind of a situation. So I can't imagine going through that all the time. It's good to know that there's help um, from people like you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So what are some things, are there things, I guess you can say, and, and if there are, that we can do as parents to not perpetuate a, a feeding issue? It, is is that even possible or is it just something that's a child's born with? Um, I think, you know, I'm a really strong proponent of family meals. Um, like even from the start, you know, as, as soon as your child is old enough to kind of even sit next to you in a bouncy chair or a rock and play or something like that while you're eating, they might not be eating, um, but kids really learn through play and they learn through watching other people. And so if, if you're like, if they're at the table with you from the start, um, they're already starting to learn, you know, what you do during mealtimes. And then as soon as they're able to eat some table foods, um, if you can bring them to the table while you're eating, it's a little bit more work and kind of start to feed them their baby foods while you're eating. And then as quickly as possible, you know, once a child's around the age of one or so and they're eating, you know, small bits of actual table solids, um, just getting them at the mealtime eating the same foods that you do, I think really goes a long way. Um, the other thing I would say is trying to keep mealtimes as positive as possible. So, if you're stressed during a mealtime, then your child knows that. And kids really feed off of what we're, what we're giving off, you know? And so they're going to be stressed too. And we want them to really learn to enjoy the experience of eating. And I loved, um, I listened to the episode with Paula Sakura and I loved how she was talking about how it's okay, you know, for most kids to like miss a meal or to not eat everything that's there on that plate. Um, because it's really true. Like for most kids, um, you can offer them a snack later or something, but during that mealtime, if you're all eating, or even if their child is just playing with the food that you're eating, they're really getting to understand like the sensory components of it. And you can, you can use that time to educate them like on the color, the texture, the taste. And so I think, you know, in terms of picky eaters, repeated exposure is one of the, the, the best things you can do. So, you know, just because your child, um, doesn't like green beans the first time they eat them or peas or something like that. That doesn't mean that you stop offering it, right? You just keep offering it. If they don't eat it, that's fine. Um, but it's it's just a way for them to learn about that food. So, yeah, I think that play is also really important. You know, allowing your, or especially early in life, children to play with food, which um, I have worked with so many parents and there's really like a spectrum of how comfortable people are with play in the mealtime. And, and sometimes parents worry that these sort of like playing with food behaviors will like continue on throughout school age, you know, but they really don't. I mean, early in life, that's how kids learn. And so it's going to be the same thing for food. If we let them play with it and explore it, um, they're really going to get to know what they like and what they don't like. Um, and through that repeated exposure, um, I think you can, you can really, you're doing a lot of good just with those simple things. That's good to know because, you know, you always hear the experts say, oh, you know, the family mealtime is, is, is invaluable. Like it's something that we should be doing and it's harder in today's world because, you know, we have more activities, we're busier, more, more families have, um, dual working families as well. But I've never really heard the why behind it other than it's good to have conversations with your family. So this is another why behind it as well that I think, you know, makes you shift your mindset around it a little bit more. 
Um, so, and it probably helps you kind of put more emphasis on making meals for your family, or if you're not making them, you know, going out and making sure that everybody's not eating separately from each other, like in front of a TV, this one, or on the back porch, this one. So that's a good insight. I never really thought of it as playing before. Yeah. And so like, like the TV and distractions during meals are are really, especially early in life, not a great idea. Um, because again, you really want kids to learn how to, how to enjoy eating for what it is. And I think you're right. Like family meals, the purpose of them and the importance shifts over time. And especially as kids get older into school age and adolescence, you really do. You need that time to connect as a family. Um, but I also try to shift people's perspective on what they think of and what they count as a family meal. Okay. Um, That's and, good to know. And, so what do you think? Right. Because we are all so busy, right? We're, and so right. I, I think that if there's one adult present and one child present, you know, and like a modeling there for some, but for that child to learn from, um, that could be considered a family meal. You've got more than one person sharing the same food options, you know, and kind of learning together about food. Um, so that makes it a little easier to achieve. And while it would be great if we could all have, you know, seven, you know, dinners together every week, that's that's impossible for most people. So it's just thinking about it as the more you can do it, the better. You know, what works for you and, you know, which days or, or which maybe it's on the weekends, you really prioritize sitting down and eating together as a family. And Yeah, I know during far. the pandemic, um, snacking was a huge issue. Actually, our pediatrician talked to us about it. Um, he asked me how snacking was going, you know, via the pandemic. And I was honest and said, honestly, awful. Like it is every two seconds asking me for a snack. Um, and luckily, you know, it, 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 and the, the level of inactivity hasn't been great, you know, has been more so over the pandemic, especially with like a virtual school than they would get in a typical school. So I could imagine, um, that, he said that he's been dealing with a, a ton of weight gain, um, especially in the adolescent uh, population. Like some kids putting on 40 to 50 pounds of weight this past year, just I, I'm sure from the sheer amount of, of snacking and inactivity. So I imagine that like the family meals during the pandemic too, hope probably took a little bit of a backseat just because things were so stressful in general. So just like you said, redefining that and making making it feel like it's more achievable by just having one adult and one child, I feel like makes it, you know, better for parents as well. Yeah. And then anybody else's bonus and, and really young children, they watch their siblings more than they watch us. And so if yeah. you can just get, you know, an older sibling um, or something like that, eating with a kiddo that might be a little bit picky or, or kind of learning about new mealtime routines, that's, that's really beneficial as well. And yeah, I mean, I think before I was a parent, I had a different perspective on a lot of these things too. And, you know, yeah, sometimes it's just getting through your day. And so I, I, I also feel like you really need to give yourself grace. Um, and you know, when we can incorporate these best strategies and practices, great. And if not, um, that's all right. You can try again tomorrow. Exactly. Just, or try again at the next meal or whatever it is, but, um, it's good to shift our perspective. And like you said, forgive ourselves a little bit, but know that there's a good reason behind eating together outside of conversation as well. It's, it's your child actually learning how to engage at a dinner table and eat their food and use their utensils, all those things. Um, so lastly, you are, I mean, one other question I did have before we move off of the OT thing. Um, 
when if a child you feel like has a eating disorder, like say say they're getting a little bit older and you, they're starting to exhibit signs of like anorexia or bulimia or some sort of extreme eating disorder, is that something you would call an OT in on as well, or or is there another avenue? Yeah, I, I think absolutely OTs could be and are involved in those cases. I feel that it's different. Um, so I would not be the right person. Uh, I don't have the expertise for that. And it it's different because typically um, with eating disorders and adolescents, the, tip, the you know traditional eating disorders we think of, there's mental health sort of issues underlying that. And so I would definitely want a psychologist to be leading that team. Um, but occupational therapists really could bring a perspective about behavior change and thinking about the daily routines and activity patterns um, of that adolescent and, and helping them to build more healthy behavior patterns, if that makes sense. And so, um, yeah, I think that OTs are involved, um, maybe, maybe not as much as they even should be, um, but definitely an OT would be a good person to reach out to. But like I said, more of a team-based approach even for young children, team-based approach is always best, right? Yeah. Like the more professionals you can have on board, the better, but that can also be overwhelming for families. And yeah. I think in, in teenagers, definitely you have to have a, a psychologist or, or somebody thinking about those underlying issues um, also helping out. Okay. Yeah. That wasn't, I wasn't sure if that was an area that OTs um, worked in as well, but yeah, I imagine early intervention for that's quite important as well. We're getting a little bit long with our time, but I did want to talk to you about this before we leave. Um, I think you provided us with some awesome information. I mean, I always learn from you, but I learned a ton today. I almost wish there was like a class on this before you had a child where you could be prepared because it seems easy, right, to feed your child or to make them go to sleep, but it's not. It's all very challenging. Yeah. Well, and I was working as a pediatric occupational therapist and early intervention when I had my first baby and I was overwhelmed. Like, I mean, I even, it's, it's just a lot. It's a big life change. It is. So, um, if you ever develop a course on that, I'm sure you'd have lots of people (laughs) in your spare time, um, you know, participating in that. So I, you and I have talked about this last topic. You are in academia. Um, and you, you have mentioned to me the level of rejection that you face on a daily basis um, being an academic, especially with regards to your research, that's been something that you've learned to kind of cope with, but it's not easy. I kind of feel the same way in corporate America, not with rejection, but like uh, you, f- you get these good jobs. They have a nice salary, you know, they have good benefits for your family and you, th- you like doing your job and you think that's it as a young professional. But as you get into it, you realize you're really just dealing with managing with people who are in stressful situations and it can become like toxic. You can get criticized a lot more than you're used to. And if you are like you, Angela and myself, and sometimes take things personally and want to be a pleaser, um, it can, it can really wreck you. Um, so I imagine that you, I know you, you were a great student. You probably really never got below a B. I, I'm not even sure if you've ever gotten a B in your life. So what, when you get into your research part of it and you start to get like some of this rejection that maybe you hadn't felt before, how have you learned to cope with that? Like, what are some good strategies around facing and dealing with rejection? Yeah, 
Yeah, I, I don't think you're ever really prepared um, to be in a situation where you're going to be like critiqued all the time, right? And so I, I have done a lot of growth around this area over the last, I would say, eight years um, since I've kind of been back in the world of academics. Yeah, it's not um, overnight, right? It's just a no, lot. That's what I'm I learning still, too. I still work on it. Yeah. yeah. And, and so you and I have talked about this. So I sat down and, and kind of thought about like, what are the things that are important? And I, I do think like, this sort of idea of a growth mindset is um, really important. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that idea that over over time, your intelligence, your creativity, like how well you do at your job or whatever it is in life, you can get better at it. You're not fixed. You're not stuck. And so I think that that allows you to kind of embrace the critiques a little bit more. Yeah. Um, and so I think that, that that's the first thing that's probably really important is just to see it as an opportunity to get better. Um, which at first you, you guys have talked about imposter syndrome. It's just like, okay, I can't, I can't cut it. Like I'm getting all, this I guess I suck. Yes. Perfection. I guess yeah. I'm just not, I'm good not, at this. I'm not meant to be here. Yep. Um, in reality, most times, not every time, but in my world, most times people really are trying to make you better or improve the quality of what you're doing. So if you can see it through that lens, that really helps. I think too, um, even a pain tolerance because you it causes you a certain level of like personal pain and whenever you feel pain you want to like avoid that situation so if I get like a really uh critical day or, or review or whatever it's a it's a kind of a level of rejection it causes you pain sometimes you want to run you're like well like it's the imposter part like I guess I'm not good at this maybe I should just look for another career <laughs> or whatever it is but the reality is you almost have to sit with that for a little while and not necessarily run and, and see what it can teach you. Right. There were times we, we do these things called like dry runs in our department where you like stand up and you present something that you're going to present or an idea that you have and, and people just tear it apart. Um, and early on, I had to really train myself to not cry. Like, right yeah. Now, oh, I, I'm a crier. I'm so, so the same just, way. It's, but in over time, I actually don't mind it at all now, especially within our department, because I, everybody, I trust everybody. I know that they're doing this to make it better. Um, I actually personal enjoy it. attack. It's, it's just right, to make right. it even better. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah, the mindset. And that, that's taken a long time for me to get there, but I think it, it happens. And another important thing um, is celebrating victories. And so hmm. we, I might submit three grants in a year and I might submit, five manuscripts and if if one grant and one manuscript gets accepted that's a win but really I should be celebrating all those submissions right think of all the hard work that went into those submissions and so taking time to celebrate those wins which I, I don't always do but I really try to and I try to encourage you know my colleagues to do that as well well success um, is like tiny little things build up over time like you can right. you can think of your job and be like what did I actually do and then if you look back over the year all those little things you did added up to a big deal, a big change that you had. Yeah, absolutely. And um, the other thing I think that are important, um, you guys, you know, you talked about last time, you know, nobody thinks about you as much as you think about you. So okay. it's that, it's that perspective, mm -hmm. right? So just because somebody rejected my grant or I did my score didn't get high enough or, or didn't like my paper, um, that, that doesn't have anything to do with my value. 
um, and as a contributor in the field, as a professional, as a person, right? And so shifting your perspective and, and thinking about how you can um, just learn from those things is is really important. And then my final tip is you're like, and I'm sorry, I cut you off a little bit, but it's just who, who you surround yourself with, like the, those people, your support system, it might be the most important thing. So are there people who are willing to celebrate your victories with you? Um, you know, in this competitive world, you got to find those people and hold on to them. Um, you know, who's your go-to person when you need to vent or um, when you just need someone to build you up and, and then giving that back to them as well. I think that, you know, support network becomes really important for these fields with high rejection or, you know, um, just a lot of putting yourself out there. Yeah, there could be college courses on this stuff, too, because it's just not something like you're so young. And I guess I guess it's not something you could be prepared for until you get into it. But man, like mindset courses around what it's like to actually work in a corporate environment or what it's actually like to work in academia would be good. But someone told me this once, too. Will it matter in 10 days? Will it matter in 10 months? Yeah. Will it matter in 10 years? And if it will matter in 10 years, it's probably something that you should shift your perspective on. But if the reality is, if it's not going to matter in the short term, then just put it behind you and not take it personally and move on. And then the other thing, too, I think is like sometimes we identify so much with what we do for a living that when that gets criticized or rejected, we 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 don't even know who we are anymore. Um, but the reality is that's just, like you said, one part of you. Um, and I like how you said that earlier about your PhD. It's not the whole part of you. It's just that one part of you. And if that goes away, you're still you. You're just, you know, without that identity part anymore. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, so thank you so much for joining us today. Are there any like resources or is there something that you do every day to feel good before we wrap this up? Um, yeah, I, I think I, I had to think about this too, because every day is tough, right? Yeah, um, it can be. My son is yelling, of course. Hold on, Isaac, I'll be with you in a minute. Um, so I think what I like to do, if I can, is take my alone walk. Um, mm -hmm. And so really, this is just some time for myself, um, where I go out and get some movement in, right? Like we've heard people talk about this over and over again, how important that is. Um, and sometimes it's not quite alone. I might use it as a time to connect with friends or family, um, but it is some time just for me. Um, and sometimes I just listen to loud music. You know, it's just like whatever I'm feeling that day, um, I think is really important. Yeah. In terms of I was going to say, yeah, Allison Hickey calls it a law, long ass walk. <laughs> go out and do a law like every day. And I was like, I like it. Oh, that's 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 a good way to think about it too yeah mm -hmm. and sometimes mine are short though right like it's yeah. just like whatever you can fit in I need that that alone walk um the longer the better um but I need that time yeah. um yeah I think the only other thing I was going to mention is like a resource from from the OT world there's a there's a blog called mama OT and so for anyone that's interested in sort of little skills um on how to promote different different things as their child is is growing. Um, it's a pediatric OT who's also a parent, obviously. And so she, she has a nice blog, mamaot.com. You can check out. We'll put that in the show notes and then we'll put it on our Instagram as well. I think that's a, that's an awesome resource that I didn't know about. 
Um, so thank you again so much for joining us today. I'm sorry Jayla couldn't be here, but um, I learned so much from you. I feel like we could do like 700 episodes together. If there's, if you have any questions or anything like that, just reach out to us. I'm at Shea Pentino, and then Angela, you are at Angela Caldwell. Is that what your or what is yours, Caldwell? Uh, I believe it is A Renee Caldwell. So okay. A and then capital R E N E E Caldwell. Capital C. Yeah. And just remember our mantra for today. And this goes really well, I think, with parenting, too. Like, my awareness opens the door to new possibilities. So if you're you're more aware at the dinner table that your kids are learning from you, um, I think that that can open the door for, to new possibilities for all of us to have a more enjoyable mealtime together. So that's my yeah, takeaway today. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say throughout throughout your day. Right. Because mm -hmm. it, it, it's so easy to be bogged down and to be lost in our phones. Like if, if you can take that time to be aware and in the moment with your family and with your kids, it, it really will help your well-being um, well, awesome. and your state of mind as well. I love that. Well, thank you so much. This is the Ask Yourself Why Not podcast. So why not check it out today and uh, open your awareness a little bit more throughout the day. So thank you so much, Angela. Thank you, Shay. Go enjoy your Have morning. What time school start? Um, well, I'll be getting Isaac on the bus here soon, but yeah, I will probably start my work day around eight. Okay. Sounds good. Have a great day. You too, Shay. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you. Recording.